Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends Travis Stewart and Margaret Stewart. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Great to be with you. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yeah, Stewart with a D. S-T-E-W-A-R-D, Stewart. Right. And Sister Stewart, Margaret offered a wonderful prayer, and we pray that a wonderful spirit will be here as you listen to this couple share their story. By way of introduction, this is a couple that's active in the LDS Church. Um, they have been mission presidents in Houston, where our family is from. My wife is from Houston, and we love that part of the world. They've been home from their mission for about 11 years. They're in their mid-50s, and Travis is an active member of the church and identifies as gay. And we're going to talk about his story coming out to his wife and then a little more broadly um, about five years ago. It's a remarkable, courageous story, and um, it takes a lot of courage for Travis and Margaret to be here and share this story. And I, my hope is that those of you that are LDS and LGBTQ, hearing Travis and Margaret talk about their journey, it'll give you more insight and hope and understanding about your own orientation. And those of you that are trying to help our LGBTQ members, local leaders, parents, um, family members, as you hear this story, that the thoughts that they share will be helpful for you or that other thoughts will come into your mind as your mind is open to this subject and how better we all can do to help our own members who are LGBTQ. Um, and I'm as we visited beforehand, I just want you to know this is a wonderful couple and a wonderful marriage. It's a beautiful love story. Um, you may have heard this on prior episodes. I Before I stepped in this space, I thought all mixed orientation marriages kind of blew up because those become a little more public. And then I've done several podcasts with couples in mixed orientation marriages. And these are beautiful love stories and some of the very best marriages I've ever um, felt and witnessed in the communication and the honesty and the trust and the common goals and a foundation on Christ. And so those of you that are in mixed orientation marriages um, that are out or not out, I hope this podcast will be helpful to you, even those that are dating and wondering as you open up to a potential partner if you're LGBTQ, which is something we may talk about, the importance perhaps of opening up in the dating process and more of our younger members doing that, that have hope that this is a potential path for you. Um, I don't think any of us here are inviting people to follow the exact path of Travis and Margaret, but I don't think I'd rule it out either and work closely with God and your partner to find your own path. Is that okay for an introduction, you two? Sounds good. Sure. Um, I'd love to start with your mission call to Houston. Um, just tell us, I know the process a little bit of of knowing you're going to be called. What general authority um, actually extended the call? Uh, actually, it was or how, yeah. President Faust extended President the call. Faust. We initially interviewed with Elder Worthlin uh-huh. um, and Elder Cook uh-huh. assisted Elder Worthlin. And then when Elder Faust told you you're going to be mission presence, did he say where, or did that come later in a FedEx to the door? <laughs> it yes, did come that, in a FedEx. He it, did just give us um, an initial Spanish-speaking assignment. So, of course, we speculated everywhere but Texas. So yeah. We didn't realize Texas was that the Houston mission was uh, so they considered didn't say, a Spanish-speaking. So they didn't say it was stateside necessarily. No, it just was it would be Spanish-speaking. You need to be prepared to be Spanish-speaking. And tell our listeners... Um, what it was like for that FedEx to come and tell our listeners how many kids you took on your mission and what that was like. And 
Uh, the ages really, of your kids. It was really awesome. We, you know, we couldn't, we, we couldn't believe that this was happening to us. We kept thinking they think we're someone else. And at any point in this process, they're going to figure out they talked to the wrong people and they're going <laughs> to say, Oh, what? Never mind." And we're like, Oh, please let us get out before you figure this out. And you pull the plug on it. But um, we were very excited. Our, we, we, as Margaret mentioned, we we knew it was Spanish speaking, so there was an assumption we would leave the country, and and that was a bit daunting, I think, for our kids and, and Margaret. She jumped right in to learn Spanish, and uh, so we waited for our mission call, and it came in February. It actually came on Valentine's Day. It was a FedEx envelope, and uh, did you our, know it was coming that day, or did you just kind of think it was coming we, sometime? No, I knew it was coming soon. <laughs> I would guess that's the craziest waiting for the FedEx trip to drop off. That it was uh, working it, for the church. He had a little bit of insight that it might come at a certain time. So. <laughs> Good. I had no idea where and what was going on here, but it came, and uh, one of our daughters was. Uh, away at uh, Snow College. We got her on the phone and the rest of the kids gathered around the table and we opened it up and I did the glance. And I <laughs> saw the it. glance. <laughs> and so I knew it wasn't leaving the country. But. So I think that initial reading Houston, we went, oh, we're not leaving the country. And so I, I Honestly, it was a little bit of a disappointment because well, we'd kind we'd, of thought that. And we had both served international missions. I served in Denmark at the same time Travis was in Chile. And uh, we just really were excited at that, at that thought. But, yeah. But we're so glad. I mean, hindsight, of course, we went exactly where we needed to go. And, and it's so great we didn't get to choose because we were at the right place at the right time with the right missionaries. There's not one thing we would have ever changed about that calling. We're so grateful that that God was in charge there and and what happened needed to happen. Margaret, tell our listeners the ages of your kids as you, I assume, loaded six kids on a plane and yeah. flew to Houston. Our oldest daughter was 18, and um, then we had a son who would do his senior year there in Texas, graduate and go on a mission to Mexico. Uh, we had a daughter who was 14 at the time, and... Um, she, <laughs> that was a, that was really hard for her. Um, we had another daughter who was 11 and a son who was eight and a son who was four. And tell our listeners where that youngest son Jacob is right now. He is in Auckland, New Zealand with a Chinese speaking assignment on his mission. So, so you spoke Danish, your husband mm -hmm. spoke Spanish, right. Spanish again, and your son's now speaking Mandarin yeah. in New Zealand. This is a missionary family. Yeah. We have a daughter, sir, also in Argentina. Argentina. In Argentina. That's the closest to Chile. <laughs> I don't know how, I'm trying to think of my South America geography. That's close enough. Now, it, was, uh, it was fun because the one daughter did her three years of high school and graduated right before we came home. And one daughter did her three years of junior, middle school, junior high, and came home and started high school. And our youngest, who was four, was too young for even kindergarten. So he spent the first year just traveling the mission with us, all his own conferences, interviews, went everywhere we went and was our little buddy. Um, it was unusual. That's uh, really told a four year old around. It's kind of hilarious. I just have to tell the story that <clears throat> we would pull up to a church 
like Katy, Texas or College Station, Texas, and we'd pull up to the building and Jacob would go, I love this nursery. They have the best toys here. They've got this bubble machine or this, like, he knew all the toys in every nursery and every church in our mission. So no child cool. wouldn't have perspective on the difference between nurseries. I've never thought of that. <laughs> but he had the bench and knew what was better than average and less than average. It had to be a strange experience. He just kind of, you know, his own conferences usually go a few hours and he just kind of ran around the church barefoot playing with toys and he'd come into the meetings and sit on our lap and fall asleep or, you know, it just, uh, he was a trooper. Thanks for your service. Honestly, on behalf of me and all of our listeners, taking six children and going to Texas and your own missions and your continued service, there's just hundreds and hundreds of lives you're blessing. And I think you're also blessing lives in this new space of how to minister and help our LGBTQ members. Thank you. Um, as I may have mentioned, my wife is from that area, grew up in your mission boundaries. Her brother and parents are there, and we love that part of the world. And um, our kids grew up in Utah, but I think they have half Texas blood in them. And, <laughs> and I'm grateful for the love my wife has for Texas, and that's one of the wonderful gifts that's given our kids. Tell us, uh, Travis, what you do professionally. Uh, my career's been with the Provo Missionary Training Center. Um, I sp spent... Uh, Started there as a Spanish teacher right after my mission. Um, six months after coming home, went to BYU and immediately started teaching Spanish and then had the great fortune to hang on there through the years, uh, move into full-time work. Um, I've done just about everything there, worked in the training area, managed the travel department. I'm currently in operations. I spent a few years uh, doing international missionary training centers, so I had an opportunity to visit our international MTCs as well. Wow. Great, uh, great opportunity. And when you were done in Houston, did you come back to the same assignment, the Provo MTC? Actually, no. I, I came home for a two-year stint in the missionary department in Salt Lake as an infield rep where I, I worked to support mission presidents. Um, I bet they were glad to have you on the other end of the phone. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's a lonely thing as a mission president. It's nice to have someone on the phone who can talk you down from <laughs> some of your crazy places. And uh, it was a it was a great opportunity. And then I was then I transferred back into the the Provo Missionary Training Center. And Margaret, tell our listeners where you make your home. We are in Provo, right downtown Provo, in an old pioneer home. Um, have lived there for twenty eight years, minus the three that we were in Houston. Uh, it was our starter home, and and we've had a lot of fun redoing it and. Um, just a fun old home in a fun old neighborhood with yeah. dear, wonderful, down-to-earth people, and roots are very, very deep there. And um, I had another question for you, Margaret, but it just slipped my mind, so maybe it'll come back. That way it's gone. <laughs> um, so you came back, and I, we want to focus on LGBTQ, so um, will you just... Let's get right to that, Travis. Will you just talk to us about your decision to come out to your wife? I th when that was, what was the backstory behind it? Why did you do it? Just kind of walk through our listeners, your, that whole chapter of your life. You bet, Richard. Um, uh, Richard, I grew up in a wonderful home in a small uh, community in northern Utah. We were a, a farming family, lots of kids five older brothers and two younger sisters. Um, later on, uh, when I was about 15, my 
parents switched from the farm stuff to uh, a business and purchased a business and ran a business that was quite successful. Um, there was a lot of love in our home. Um, we didn't communicate a lot about our feelings. Um, I, uh, I think this is a, an important point I'd like to make here because I think this is something that probably most who uh, have the LGBTQ experience could relate to, and that is that um, before we ever realize that we're gay, we realize that we're different in some way or another. And uh, as a young boy, I realized in lots of ways that I was a bit different from my family members. I mean, I never felt ostracized by them. No one ever made me feel different. I just felt like I was seeing the world through a little bit of a different lens than they were seeing. I was a much more sensitive kid. Um, and you can imagine in a family of lots of boys, there's not a lot of room for sensitivity. We played hard and fought hard and had fun, but um, I was pretty sensitive. I, you know, I could uh, cry pretty easily. Uh, sometimes when there were some rough and tumble things to do, uh, I, I enjoyed that. But other times I wanted to do quiet and maybe more softer things. Uh, probably we could, you know, it'd be categorized in when I was younger, the girly things. You know, I, I often probably felt more comfortable with girls and women than I did with men and boys. I felt like I could relate a little more there. I felt um, like more. I was more comfortable in that surrounding. And so, you know, there were some differences that way. Um, it was never really a big deal. My, my brothers never, you know, hassled me. I never had trouble or difficulty that way. But um, I think there were some ways that that also made me worry more about my family and kind of take on more of a... Uh, a caretaker role and a, a concern about things that I had no business being worried about. You know, I was worried if everybody was happy. I was worried if my parents were happy in their marriage. I was worried if we had enough food. I was worried if we had enough money to pay the bills. And, you know, for a kid to pick up those kind of things, it just, it was innate in me. It wasn't something that I saw and necessarily uh, was put upon me. It was just a sensitivity for things that I think most kids don't pick up or think about or pay attention to. When I was about 12, uh, 13, uh, it was the summer before I started junior high, I was playing on a little league football team. I had a couple of uncles who coached the little league football team, and uh, I'd played on their team for a couple of years. And this particular season, our uh, team grew because uh, as we were going into junior high, we had two elementary schools feeding into the same junior high. And so the boys playing little league football came together and merged on this team as we began um, junior high. So there were a lot of new kids on the football team that summer. And I just had the strangest uh, thing happen to me where I began to develop what I call a crush on one of the boys. Um, I don't think at the time I would have used the word crush because I didn't know what a crush was. I just knew that I had these strong feelings towards this teammate. I, uh, I wanted to be his friend. 
um, I wanted to talk with him and I wanted to be close to him. I thought he was very handsome, very beautiful, and I was very drawn to him um, emotionally. I found myself thinking about him when we weren't playing football. And uh, every chance during football practice, I wanted to be around or close to him. I wanted to hear what he was saying and see what he was like. Um, I think that same experience that I was having, probably all the boys on that team were having the same type of, type of experience, but it was about girls. Um, but I, you know, what 12-year-old, 13-year-old knows what puberty really is? or even understand what's really going on with you. I didn't think much about it. Um, and over time, that uh, feeling of crush kind of shifted around and it bounced from different boy to boy. And uh, as I entered junior high and as I uh, began that experience, and, and by the way, junior high ought to be against the law. There's just not anything good that comes out of junior high. That's true. <laughs> so um, here I am with these feelings beginning to emerge, and now I'm uh, beginning into junior high where I become very enlightened very quickly. There's a lot of, you know, say goodbye to the elementary school, um, simplistic, idealistic uh, innocence, and uh, you start into that important part of life where you start to learn some real things. A lot of it's not great, but necessary to learn. So I began to hear about uh, the gay experience. Now, back then the term wasn't used. There were other words for people who liked boys, boys who liked boys. And I began to hear that term thrown around. And of course, at school, you begin to see who could be one of these boys who likes boys, and you start to hear the things that boys say about those types of boys. And the jokes, and um, uh, it just, it's, you, you figure out pretty quick that it's not cool uh, to be this way. And I'm beginning to realize that there's something about what they're talking about that is me. And of course, that becomes alarming and I'm, I'm not really quite sure. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to wrap my head around it, understand it. Um, and at the same time, not even wanting to allow myself to think that that could anyway be something uh, that I was experiencing. Uh, as uh, I got through my seventh grade year of junior high and uh, got into eighth grade, um, I had a, a rough experience that um, really solidified for me um, the stigma and um, the, the reality that anyone who was experiencing what I was experiencing, same-sex attraction, that that was um, something that was very unacceptable. It was at least unacceptable in my junior high and among my friends and among my community, and that's about as far as, you know, as a 13-year-old sees. But I got the message loud and clear, and in one particular instance, um, there was an experience where I saw some boys, three boys, who 
uh, met with, uh, they decided to, to confront one of these uh, young men who was gay in my junior high. They were going to confront him about his homosexuality. And I, I was aware that this was about to go, go down, it was about to happen, but I was kind of confused on what, what really was the intent of this interaction. And um, much to my uh, surprise and um, really much to my disappointment, this turned into a, a rough, very uh, terrible verbal altercation which escalated into pushing and shoving and uh, hurting and uh, pushing down and uh, hitting. And eventually um, this boy trying to get away from these other three boys running through uh, a plowed field while they were throwing dirt clods at him. Oh. Um, that was uh, a huge per turning point for me, Richard, in that I realized in that moment that this was such a bad thing to have or a bad thing to be that um, it, was, it was not just bad, it was dangerous. And people didn't like people who were like this, who were like me. So that for me really began um, a significant... Uh, decision and determination that no one could ever know this about me because uh, the ramifications were were big, really big. Now, you know, I don't want to be dramatic there for a, a junior high kid um, seeing someone get beat up for being gay. Uh, may sound a bit dramatic, but that was just the beginning of, of a lifelong, and I'm, I'm 56 now, of a lifelong experience of hearing and feeling what it means from community, from uh, individuals, um, society in general, of what a terrible thing uh, to be homosexual is, or transgender, or or any other other, and. Uh, that pain and that uh, worry and fear just continued to grow from that point of a 13-year-old. And uh, the shame, probably more than anything, began to grow there. So it was really a, a frightening, um, worrisome. It wasn't some, something that began all of a sudden. It slowly came on, and with time, it built and built and built as I understood more and heard more. And the pressure and the shame um, begin to take hold, and the fear. Uh, then it began the modification of how you know I had to be vigilant and careful that nobody could ever find this out. And so, you know, it plays out in strange ways. You you're super careful about how you speak and how you walk, how you hold yourself, uh, your expressions, uh, the clothing you wear, uh, the things you like. Uh, you've got all. You're always on guard in this fear of. What if I said something something, and somebody picked up or, or made some assumption? And of course, throughout the years, there would be things where someone would go, oh, that, 
are you gay or that sounded gay or what, you know, you got to be kidding me. And, and then you have to go into backpedal mode really fast and, you know, stamp that, that question or that suspicion out as quickly as possible. That's really exhausting. Um, and super damaging because, uh, on a, on a more personal, uh, spiritual level or emotional level, I somehow picked up the idea that I had done this to myself. Um, and so I was heaping this shame uh, that, you know, I had, I'd looked too long, I'd wondered too much, I'd thought inappropriate, I had, and, you know, that's what happens when you think bad things, then you become bad. And even without having a religious upbringing or, a, you know, a church culture in my life, I think I had a sensitivity for those types of things anyway. And, uh, man, I, I, could, I could really beat myself up. And so it really began this process of I'm broken, I'm bad. I did this to myself, and now um, i got to fix it. And so you're in this mode of... Well, part part denial because you're you're one trying to talk yourself out of it. This isn't true. This isn't real, and sometimes maybe, but most of the time, no, 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 no. It can't be, and then other times where it's just so square in your face that you can't, you know, you feel like you can't deny it. Um, while at the same time realizing um, this is so bad to everyone else, it's really bad to God. And so I, you know, I, I, part of that journey was picking up a lot of self-loathing, a lot of feeling of not being good enough or worthy enough or acceptable to God. And so uh, what do you do when, when you're bad, you, you'd be good. And if you can, if your number of goods can outweigh your number of bads, then maybe at the end you can squeep in or, you know, somehow. So I began to work especially hard for the approval of God, because uh, I was bad, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to be good. I, I, I always wanted to be good, and ironically, um, I was already good, but I didn't. I didn't recognize that as as what it was. It was it was never good enough. So yeah, that's kind of how it all got going, and uh, I. It's been a it's been a ride, um, a, a difficult, shameful, shame filled uh, journey. Um, where probably the most damaging part of all of that is the narratives uh, of your youth and and growing into adulthood, the the things that you tell yourself and you believe get really messed up, and. Uh, they become your reality. It's it's not, you know, it's just not what you thought. It's what you believed, absolutely believed, like you would defend to the death belief. And uh, that is probably one of the biggest, most damaging parts of this journey is those uh, those unhealthy narratives that grow in silence and shame that are not challenged because you're in silence and shame. And, you know, I, I say Satan didn't need me to go out and do something crazy. He just needed me to be quiet and alone 
and afraid. And then I could, I could do the rest. I, I could handle the rest of the damage. You know, that was enough. That's that really interesting. I could. Uh, so insightful about the role of Satan in your life and this whole, wow. And sometimes you think he's going to come at you and throw some big temptation, dangle that carrot in front of your face, and you're not going to be able to control yourself and you're, you're going to do something terrible. No, I think his greatest, most effective work is uh, getting between you and God and between you and your relationship, your, your self-worth before God. Um, because that, you know, that's about as damaging and caustic, you know, because that just, that sets the stage for a whole life of turmoil and uh, dissonance and uh, suffering. Thanks for being so honest. It's, um, I talked to a lot of younger LGBTQ people, and one of the things that's about your story is, you know, you're in your 50s and have been on this road and aware of this road for 40 years, and just the, the perspective you bring um, is very helpful in sort of your spiritual maturity about and your ability to talk about this in very healthy ways and very thoughtful ways is very insightful for me. And I think for our listeners, yeah, talk about, so you've been on this road for 40 years, Travis and Margaret, and why did you come out and who did you come out to first? And was it just a, a long-term plan thing? Was it very spontaneous? And what, yeah. you know, was, were you at the very worst emotional spot and you just had to come out or was it much just share with our listeners what was going on? Sure. Well, um, I think for me, this was a bit unique from some of the stories I've heard of others. And, and that is of course, I was determined that this was going to the grave with me. Right. I mean, I, <laughs> I, at every point, this was locked up, protected, and, and uh, it was, it was, it, it wasn't, it could not be known because, of course, I knew all the ramifications. I would, you know, and, and those narratives, I would lose my wife, I would lose my children, I'd lose my job, I would lose my membership. And, of course, that was just the fact if somebody knew. I'm, of course, I hadn't done anything, but just somehow the, the idea of being gay was enough that my whole world would would collapse and Those fall are apart. Big things: employment, family, wife. Yeah. I mean, everything. You you think about too the 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 pressure kept mounting throughout um, my life and throughout our marriage. You know, I I'm, I'm I'm trying to make the best of this. I'm moving forward. I I I want good things. I want to be faithful. I I, I became active in the church uh, when I was 18 and served a mission and that became a great comfort and the support. It kind of helped. It gave me a place where I could focus uh, my, <laughs> my repentance, my um, self-flagellation, you know. This is this place where I can, I can beat myself up really well and I can uh, somehow beat this monster. And, uh, but at the same time, it was very heartfelt. I, I, it, 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 there was a lot of comfort and a lot of peace. And um, along that way of determining I would never talk about it um, were periods of, of terrible desperation of, of thinking, man, it would almost be better if I could just die. And of course, there's a lot of shame in killing yourself anyway and the shame you, you put on people you leave behind that I thought about that I just kind of hoped maybe 
something would, could just accidentally happen to me and it could just all be over. And uh, everybody would be spared the fallout and the damage and the suffering of what this would mean to everybody if it were known. About five years ago, um, five it's and a really half years honest. ago, it's really honest. This this strange thing began to well up inside of me that I needed to tell my wife, and uh, you know I. I don't know that it was necessarily a spiritual prompting. It was something stranger than that in that it it just, it was like something is going to, I'm going to say it and I have no control over it. Um, you know, almost kind of, and, and I don't know if this is a fair comparison, those that suffer with uh, Tourette's syndrome, you know, where things just come out and they, you know, the, the fear and the worry, you know, I've always imagined, wow, what if you just said something? That's what it began to be for me, that this panic, that the words would just come out of my my mouth to her. And uh, it really became a, a wrestle of thinking, where is this coming from? And absolutely no, 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 no. And what can I do? Shut this down, burn this bridge, wherever this is coming from, this is wrong. There's there's some attack on um, the bank here and and we're not having this. And then one Sunday morning, I woke up and it just came out. It just came out of my mouth to my wife. And uh, as it came out, also 40 years of, of uh, fear and shame and worry came out with it. It was not pretty. <laughs> it was was not pretty. Um this and, couple are holding hands. I wish you all could see the I, tender interaction between them, the tears uh, in their eyes, holding hands together. It, um, you know, it's just a very terrifying moment that I had no control over. And I, I think that's for me important that people know I'm not this, uh, I'm not this brave, courageous person who decided to face this monster. And, you know, I have gone absolutely kicking and screaming, Richard. Uh, this has been against my will. Um, and fortunately for me, my to my great blessing, um, my sweetheart Margaret uh, handled it. She handled it in the way that I needed. It, I, I needed. I don't, I don't know if I could have said to somebody, hey, I'm going to tell you something awful. And I need you to be like this for me. It couldn't have been better than that. Um, because she she absorbed it and uh, comforted me and uh, reassured me and, 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 and really tried to bring me down from this really uh, emotional uh, crisis. Um, and I, I realized that's, you know, that's heavy news to get. Um, it's traumatic and uh, a sense of fear and betrayal and, and, and many, many, many things. And uh, to her great credit, she was able to be there for me uh, despite anything that she might have personally at the moment been inclined to want to feel or react in the moment. And um, it was out. And it was out and... Uh, we were able to talk a bit about it, but we both were 
were absolutely convinced I was the only person like this. You know, it's strange in this day and age to to feel like you really are that far off and away from of experience. Uh, when, of course, there are obviously many around having similar experiences. But for us, we part of that that shame or fear or overwhelmness was that we were alone in this and we had nothing to look to or know what to do. That's another disappointment that I look back and think, man, we didn't have anybody. We didn't turn to anybody. We didn't look to anybody. We were alone in that. And, and now I'd brought her along, you know, now I'd brought her into, you know, the, the loneliness, the shame, the fear. Um, and we didn't know what to do. So we really didn't do anything. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that fateful Sunday morning or if that's something, Richard. You're, yeah, I'd love to hear your good wife. That other side of that uh, moment. Well, it's an interesting thing because um, I would characterize myself as a very um, insecure person and have been. I'm I'm a, a raging codependent. I take my cues from what I think people need, and that's what I that's what I try to be. And so um, I had a lot of insecurities that were my own in our marriage that had nothing to do with him. And normally when I think about this kind of a situation happening, I think both of us could say with fair certainty that I wouldn't have handled it well, that I, that it would have become reactionary and all about me. What does this mean for me? And what does that say about me? And, and what's going to happen? And like the focus going from out here, us to drawing into, I've got to defend, I've got to, and, uh, it was interesting because, um, you know, I've had a lot of experience. My, my own sister, my only sibling is lesbian and I've had lots of friends over the years who are gay and I've had a lot of questions and I've had a lot of time to think about what does this really mean as opposed to what I keep hearing people say this means. And I had a lot of questions and, and I feel like I was just generally more open to this is part of God's plan or it wouldn't exist. I can't explain it. I don't have answers, but that openness, I think when he talked about it for me, I, I, when he said, I, I need to talk to you, you know, like most normal people, that tone, I, th th my stomach like dropped and I thought, okay. But then I seriously had revelation come into my head that said, whatever comes out of his mouth, you just need to hear it and accept it. And that was all I got was just nothing else. And that was enough. And that's one of the things I've noticed about the Lord's economy. When he says something, it's straight to the point and it's small, but it goes right to the heart of what this, what I need you to do. And so he, he began speaking. And as he spoke, all I could feel was compassion going, you've had this all these years and you've, the suffering was intense. And, uh, and I was at a loss to know what to do because immediately when we're put in that kind of a situation, we go right to, what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we handle this? And usually all the focus goes on behavior. So I feel like most women would be like, um, and, and this is not to discredit anyone else or anyone else's experience. I'm relating to myself with this. I got to check their phone. I got to watch what they do. Who do they pay attention to? I got to get control of this. I got to hover and manage. And believe me, I wanted, I felt inclined to do some of those things, 
But then I would feel these feelings of like, give him the space he needs to just be as raw and as scared as he is and not put your own needs into this. Like I need you. And it was miraculous for me that I was supported and blessed with insight and revelation. And I, I know that's not, that doesn't always happen. I don't know why it happened for me. I'm just grateful that it did. Um, but those first two years were pretty brutal because neither one of us knew what to do with it. Um, I watched Travis decline. I mean, he would say to me often, you know, I, I know you need more information. I don't know what to say. And I, and, and we, I was trying to give him space and then it was probably too much space sometimes. And we didn't know how to talk about it. There just is so much shame and taboo around things that we don't understand and that we can't put in a neat little box of what things mean and put it on the shelf and be like, Oh, okay, this, we're good. This is good. We had to let it hang there. Um, he became severely depressed, severely depressed to the point that I saw and knew that he was not doing well. And in the fall of 2016, emotionally, things came to a head for both of us. And we had some ugly weeks there of desperation and of pain and of fear. And of um, I can honestly say <laughs> for myself that that was the lowest point of my life because I felt so helpless to know what to do. I knew what not to do. Um, but I just had to sit in it, but thankfully, um, some things happened that were just what we needed. And here's something that's ironic. We work with a lot of couples, um, have a lot of friends. There was something in the water end of summer, 2016 or that fall, because it is astounding how many individuals had similar type disruptive experiences that brought them to face the truth and to have to learn how to move forward. One of the parts of that uh, that's significant for me, uh, Richard, in, in, in my story is that you would have thought and I would have thought that, oh, you know, I got this off my chest. Whew, I'm going to be okay now. I, I, I feel better. And, and, you know, now I'm going to feel free. It had exactly the opposite effect for me because uh, I actually admitted it. And it, it, you know, it's that coming out of the proverbial closet, you know, to yourself, to myself. But, but then I was re immediately, um, because I hadn't intended to come out of the closet. I was, I was dragged out of the closet. Um, I immediately retreated back to the closet or tried to retreat back to the closet it was my, my reaction but I couldn't, I couldn't get back in the closet. The, the door was gone. You know, I'd said the words I'd told her I'd admitted it. And I, and, and as much as I tried to just say, Oh, well, I was just kidding. Or maybe it wasn't that bad or, you know, not really. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, every way I tried to, it, 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 it couldn't go away. And that became absolutely devastating to me. The, the full on truth of the, of the matter, um, just was too much to bear. I'd lived for a long time in a state of semi-denial, semi-minimizing, semi-coping, you know, I had my way of, of coping, you know, I, I had, I had things I could tell myself and 
and I had things I could do. You know, I could fast like crazy and I could pray like crazy and I could repent like crazy and I could go to the temple like crazy and I could read the scriptures like crazy. I, I could, I could do all of these things to save myself, to, to make this better. And of course, I didn't know any of that at the time. It was just plain terrible. And I uh, really came to a crisis mode. Uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, get into some counseling and, and some strong people stepped in and I was able to get it out to them. And, um, and uh, some angels came and, and really rescued me at a very, very, very critical, critical time. It was, it was very, it was very painful. I, I look back and I think, um, I believe that, that somewhere along the way, God said, you know, Travis, we're not doing this anymore. I always felt like this was a deal we had, you know, I'll Ever be a good boy. Then. You know, I'll be a good boy. You'll take care of me. You'll protect me. You'll keep me on the straight and narrow and I'll just keep, I'll, I'll give you everything I've got. Keep plowing ahead. Um, so it was kind of a deal thing. Well, you know, faith and repentance and the gospel, it doesn't work that way. It's not a, it's not a deal with God. We have a savior. We have a redeemer who saves us. We can't save ourselves. And there was a huge part of this that it was up to me. Most of my life, it's been up to me. And I think God said, you know what? This thing of you trying to save yourself isn't working for you. And so uh, maybe mercifully, he finally had to intervene to the point of, of making it come out, of, of starting uh, the dominoes to fall. And really what was falling, and again, something that I didn't realize at the time that I can look back on and, and totally see was what was falling apart was this false sense of, of control or, or need or ability to save myself, that somehow I, I had to fix this. I had to take care of this. And uh, it wasn't for me to fix. It wasn't for me to take care of. And that was a brutal, really the brutal part, the most painful of, um, because what, what ended up happening was I was defeated. I, in that, that, that two-year period of telling Margaret up until really coming to crisis mode was accepting the fact that I was defeated. I really was gay, and I couldn't fix it. And I was still determined to fix it. I was still determined to get rid of it. I still felt all the pressure on me, but all of the ways of coping before, nothing worked anymore. And so really it was um, God... God breaking my heart. Um, I always thought that I had to break my heart. You know, God wants a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And man, I have spent most of my life um, trying to hurt myself enough because I deserved it. And if, if I hurt myself enough, um, then that was uh, that was kind of payment. I deserved it, and uh, I could never hurt myself enough. 
and it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me to fix it. First of all, it wasn't something to be fixed, which of course that narrative I would have never believed. And it wasn't for me to do anything about. So it, um, having your heart broken and being made contrite is really God's work. I don't know how I thought or how I moved to that strange, I moved to a lot of strange places in my head in trying to manage this. Um, Can I just share it? I have a friend who she listens to this um, Christian I think he's a monk or Chris, are there such things as Christian monks? <laughs> he has a, he has a um, blog or something. And she said this profound thing to me one day and I've never forgotten it. She said that none of us truly accept the need for Jesus Christ in our lives until all of our own plans and, and work of trying to save ourselves ultimately fail. That it's only in seeing God never asked that and we can't do it before we really come to feel the need for a savior and to seek him because you have to know, I can't do it. I can't do it myself. So that was his. And for me, that was part of that narrative, that message that got warped or twisted earlier on is that, yeah, Jesus is there and he is very displeased with this. He is very displeased with you, but if you will work extra hard um, and do good, then maybe in the end, he might, like I mentioned before, might let you slip in at the last minute. And I and 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 I I wanted that. I would I would take that. I I wanted anything to be in that. That that's a place where I wanted to be. Um, but how how terrible, how yeah. how how wrong, how exhausting, um, destruct destructive that was and um he needed and that's why this kicking and screaming was uh he was he was taking me to this place of healing of understanding he's going to correct these false narratives um but it, it is a very very painful place to go to have to face the reality and have those narratives uh challenged because it's I, I tell Margaret, I felt like I, I lived two years of not knowing who I was. And, and you, you know, I, I was still the same person, you know, I did the same job. I, you know, doing the same things, but everything, every single aspect of my life that I'd ever thought about me, uh, had just completely been blown apart. Um, and I, and I, I didn't know what it all meant. That's a really tough place to be in. And I think many people in their trials in life, in their their crash and burns, whatever those might be for anyone who's having any type of um, difficult journey, um, is a very, it's a very hard place to be when you don't know. And, and this is such a, a gospel of answers. And we have an answer for everything. But we don't have good answers for this. And um, I just wanted answers because I thought, okay, if this is true, then I, I need some answers. And, uh, and part of that difficult part of that journey is that there are no good answers. And then you think, well, there are no good answers here. Well, what are you doing, God? Like, you've kind of messed up here. And, um, you know, then, then you begin to kind of... <laughs> 
you, you know, you come out of this, I call it I, my bleed out. I, I had to bleed out. And then you're coming back uh, from the bleed out and you're trying to put together some semblance of who you are or how you're going to go forward. And everything has changed. You're still this person, but everything has shifted in a really important way, in a really profound way. I mean, again, in hindsight, I can look back and I can finally look back. I can barely now finally look back and go, man, this is the best thing to ever happen to me, to us. Man, this has been the most terrible, awful journey ever. So honest. Um, There's a lot of tears in this room in my eyes and everybody's eyes. And I think maybe your eyes as you're working out in the morning or driving. And I'm struck with the principles you're teaching that apply to all and lots of difficult situations. And so there'll be listeners listening that aren't LGBTQ, but are dealing with really difficult things. And the things you're teaching us about coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ, coming to Christ, using him in a way that to solve things in our life that we can't solve ourselves. Your quote from that Christian monk, (laughs) Margaret, or I, I think there's name. a Christian monk. <laughs> I wish I could give him credit. But but. This is just a beautiful story of deep wrestling with really, really hard stuff. And it's a faithful story, and it's a really difficult story. And what um, what would you say to some people, Travis, that say, well, you, if you know, if I were counseling somebody as a as a bishop or as a friend, I would, and they opened up to me, my natural inclination might say, well, don't come out because. I think in the back of my mind, they're maybe more likely to sort of leave the church or in, um, if they're gay, enter in a same-sex relationship. And here you're out. I um, mean, obviously, you're in your marriage and, and in the church. Is it easier now? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Richard. Because you seem to be in the best spot you've ever been. Well, it, Or a really honest, good spot at this point. A, it's been an interesting uh, transition that way. Um, for me, identify as gay. And, uh, and then that's just for me. That's my preference. And part of that is um, I've needed to own this. You know, I, I, I need to own this, this part of my life. I, it's not who I am. It's not what I am. It's, this, it's just this one thing. You know, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an employee. I'm a, I'm a whatever. And, and there's also this gay thing. Any, for me, and again, for me personally, any attempt to minimize or make others comfortable with that term, for me, implies or, or, or sets off a bit of a sense of shame. If I, if I have to bring this down for somebody to make them feel better, my shame level goes up. That's interesting. Um, I've told Margaret this many times, and, and I believe this very, very much, and, and I think if if people who have someone who experiences the LGBT uh, spectrum in their their lives, they need to understand that it's not about people hearing about this. It's the need to say it. So I, I could care less who knows. Of course, initially it was like, I don't want anybody. But part of that shame and that secrecy and that fear you know, that shame, I, 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 I just could go on forever about the power of shame in secrecy. And uh, that that is just so caustic and so damaging. And I think if people understood the, the caustic 
damaging effect of shame, they would never insinuate or suggest someone stay silent about something because they, they, they probably don't understand the fact of what that means that, that keeps you in your shame. And so for me, um, getting out or, you know, getting out from under shame, the only way I could sense that something would happen is when I would tell someone. And initially it was my wife and then my children and then a few close friends. But I, 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 every time it was terrifying, but every time I felt that this was something I was supposed to do, and every single time, Richard, I felt a portion of shame be relieved. Um, you know, I, I call it that elephant, that suffocating shame elephant that, that was in my room my entire life, sitting on me, killing me. Killing you. And every time I could speak about it, part of that, that would go away. And I, I picked up on that, and, and it was this freeing thing. Now, I'm, I'm going to maybe for some of our listeners suggest that they consider this, that, you know, when you think about shame and you, you, you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, what's over there on the other end of shame? You know, you're, you're ashamed of something or you're very proud. You're very proud of something, right? Probably the two ends of this. Well, you think of the, the shame in 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 being gay or homosexual, uh, the, the stigma um, that's attached there culturally, socially, um, even our church culture, huge, huge shame there. Um, and at the other end of that is this pride. So when you're trying to get out of shame, it's really easy to, to ricochet and swing to the other extreme, which is being proud of what it is. So I don't know, think about why do we have pride festivals? Why do we have these events where people want to show their pride for this aspect of their life? Now, I think for, for the people not experiencing this, that's got to be really frustrating. You know, get out of my face with this. Really, you're going to be proud about that? It's not something that I, f I feel necessarily to run around and pound my chest about this, because I think with any extremes, and in this extreme, these two extremes of shame and pride, it's always probably better somewhere in the middle. We know being prideful is not ever a good idea. And we know that shame is never good. But somewhere in the middle is this, this really great space of growth and, and charity and, and love and compassion and understanding. And I think we are living too much of our lives as a people, as a culture, as a church culture, in the two extremes of this. We have people hiding over here, dying committing suicide and shame. And we have these, this other very vocal, angry, um, hurt and in your face, see me, hear me, um, uh, part. And, and, and so I, I, I just would invite, uh, listeners to, to contemplate when you've been in such terrible oppression of shame and you can't handle it anymore, you just may, you know, some people just go crazy on Facebook, you know, and, and these big coming out parties or these, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's like a, the explosion, the pressures build up and the explosion isn't pretty. And normally if, if the pressure hadn't been so hard, there probably wouldn't be such a, a significant explosion. And so I'd invite people to be, be patient with, because really it's about what they need. It's not about what you need to hear. Just like it's your what, wife when it's you It's what they need out. to say. Yeah. I, that's why I say, I need to talk about it. 
you may not want to hear it or you may not be interested in hearing it but but part of that is is i need i need to feel like i'm normal I'm, i need to feel like i'm heard this this oppression or this marginalization or, 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 or being broken. And again, it's not just being gay, Richard, you know, we, we have lots of things that we're uncomfortable in talking about mental health, um, infertility, divorce, um, lots, you know, just fill in the blank. Those, those types of things. We, I think they're all in that same, you know, we, we have certain levels of, of, uh, what we can bear in talking about or understanding any of those. And, and this, this gay one is still a tough one. It's still a hard one for people to wrap their head around. Can I just uh, speak to this? Because um, one of the reasons that I've thought long and hard, not just in the last five years, but long and hard in my whole life about this. And I've come to understand that what we believe something means drives how we respond and, and what we do. Now, when you when someone says the term gay, there will be things that will automatically come to your head. The primary first one is sexuality. Like it will go right to sexuality. Then someone may go and deviance. And so it's the focus is on behavior, but the truth of someone who experiences being gay is a way broader spectrum than that. And it's, it's variable and it fluxes and not all gay people are exactly alike. And the number one aspect of their being is not about the sex, the sex. It's not about sexuality. It is a whole broad spectrum that has beautiful parts to it that, and so people, when they, they pick up that word gay, I would invite people to think and maybe even sit and write down, what does that mean to me? When I hear that term, what comes to my mind? And then challenge yourself about some of those beliefs. Because in my own personal experience with people around me, um, sexuality is one aspect and it is a very powerful aspect. But at the same time, I don't think homosexuality is any more powerful than heterosexuality. And my own feelings and drives and experiences um, you, I can't put them in a separate category and say, you know, I don't define myself as a heterosexual. I don't lead with my sexuality. And for some people that's uncomfortable, but gay people didn't put that on themselves. That, that became the defining focus and point, like everything else about them goes in a, in a, in a circle around that one point. When, if you look at it, it is a broad, broad spectrum. And, and this is what I found too, especially for gay members of the church. They not only need affirmation that this is my real life and this is my experience. I didn't ask for this. I don't necessarily understand it. I don't want it for some, but it is my reality. And, um, and there are good parts to this. And if people are defining it as this one thing, they know in their heart of hearts, that's not what it's all about. They need affirmation, not only of their sexuality, but they need affirmation of their life experience. And they need affirmation of their faith because many members of the church, especially who are gay are deeply sensitive. They, and it's interesting because a lot of people will bring up it's all about the law of chastity, right? Like you just need to have a testimony of and live the law of chastity the focus there is on behavior. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's so interesting to me is that 
I believe that people um, and gay people probably know, know more nuances and respect and want to live worthy of more nuances of the law of chastity than heterosexuals do because they have obsessed about it their whole lives, about wanting to be clean, wanting to be worthy. And so they're aware of aspects of it that for the rest of us, we're kind of like, eh, it's human nature to be whatever, 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 but not for them. They, there's a different standard applied there. And so for me, at least I've had to challenge and look at the things that I have believed, not only about someone who is gay, but about a lot of things that fall outside of a lot of experience that falls outside of social norms. Well, it's very helpful, Margaret. Um, what um, do you love about your husband? Cause he's gay. You know, this is interesting because Cause you we're defining this a lot <laughs> yes. more than just this yeah. part of behavior. I'm going to tell you a little story that illustrates um, when I was growing up, one of the things I loved to do is play out in our, I lived in a small town and grew up in Nephi and I loved to play out in the middle of, of my block. We lived by this dry stream bed that came through our neighborhood. And, um, in the spring, rye grass would come up and it would be the little, just beautiful green sprouts of rye grass. And I would like dig them up and put them in a little hut and put them around. And I loved, I loved that spring was my time. Well, when we had become friends and we're spending time together. There was one time a bunch of us friends drove in a truck up to Y mountain and we were getting out of the back of the truck and getting ready to go hike. And Travis jumped out of the back of the truck and those little green rye grasses were just coming up out of the ground. And he's like, green, hi green. And he just went over and he goes, aren't they just nibbleable? Don't you just want to nibble them? And I stood there and looked at him and I'm like, that's a thing that's been a thing for me. And, um, his compassion, his tenderness, his creativity, his willingness to, um, something about Travis that is astounding is that he, he loves so broadly, um, people who many marginalize and, and, and struggle to love. So there's been so many aspects of him that I'm like, yeah, I think I pretty much been attracted to gay men my whole life. Like that's what I want. I want someone who wants to be good and somebody who, uh, is tender like that and will love children. I mean, he was a better mom than I was honestly in the beginning, I have to say, because <laughs> he, he changed diapers. It, it, oh my goodness. He was a natural at it. I could tell you stories there too. He, he taught me a lot about, um, that love. What made him a better mission president because he was gay? That's um, a leading question. <laughs> I would guess, um, I would guess that now kind of in, in hindsight, you see some of the things he was able to do as a mission president that better connect the dots. The number one thing was like for myself is the compassion for um, a desire to understand rather than to just focus on the behavior of missionaries. For Travis, it was, uh, let me help you understand that this is a difficult situation to do, but I have every confidence in you and will help you. We're not standing above you, showing you the gold standard. We're going to be in with the elbow grease helping you to do this. And so he loved, and not only as a mission president, but as a counselor in the state presidency. And for 11 and a half years prior to our service in the mission, I watched him see, this is what's difficult as a leader. Sometimes you want to fix things and you feel the responsibility of being a judge in Israel. 
but um, what you what you don't always do is is be with them in the hard things. He would interview missionaries, and uh, they would speak to him about things. And he didn't give them a little pat answer about this is how you solve that elder or sister. He would call them during the week. Um, he would, he would bring up, you know, again, keep notes to be able to say, this is, I mean, and he just knew he, he loved with his whole heart and he could ask a missionary to do something or a member of our stake or our ward. And it would be a hard thing. This needs to change in your life, but he would be with them in it. It wasn't just like, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you in this. And that, that compassion came from a place, um, seriously suffering. If this is true of the savior's example, suffering carves out capacity that is for love that is gigantic. Suffering carves out capacity for love. That's gigantic. That's really a great statement. That is our doctrine. I'm just so touched with your answer to that question. I wish my son had been in your mission. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We always thought we'd have fun go to Houston where <laughs> our family's from. Um, yeah, we could just stop the podcast here, but I have a lot more questions. Would either of you, if there was a red button that you, Margaret, you could push it to make your husband straight or Travis, you could push it to make you straight. Would either of you push that button? I wouldn't. Why wouldn't you push it, Margaret? For the very reason that I just told you. Okay. That, um, and I'm going to explain another doctrine to help illustrate that. Uh, we very often in the church believe in something that Terrell and Fiona um, Givens talked about in their book, The God Who Weeps. We believe in this doctrine of meritology, which is one of saying, if I behave this, 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 and this way, then my reward will be this, 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 and this. And so, so we don't even know that we believe that sometimes, but ask yourself that, do I believe that if I check all the boxes that my reward will look like this, this, and this, um, what we don't understand is that, and believe (laughs) is that opposition is in all things and the opposition serves a purpose. Satan served an eternal purpose in the garden of Eden. Um, it was necessary. So the things that Travis has gone through in his life that he has suffered have created this huge, it's, it, I can't even describe it. And so I wouldn't change it because, um, I'm so glad that he, uh, knows now that the savior is the only one that can save him. And, um, And we have gotten so comfortable accepting the truth of things that as they are and not having to have all the answers because what else is faith? (laughs) Faith is a belief in things that are true, but aren't seen. And we don't see, and a lot of people don't see how a gay man married to a straight woman would ever work out. And, uh, but that there are lots of things where we don't see this is how that would be, or this is how that would work out. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change our journey, my, our journey together or what I've experienced with him for anything. Love that answer. Travis, I bet you would have loved, maybe you you still love to press that button and I don't think it's a sign of, (laughs) I tell you, 
I tell you, Richard, in, in, in this process, and it's probably not that many months ago, and maybe even still at times that I, I feel like I'd like to go back and hit that button. Sure. But I think the further I get down the road, um, the more I see the hand of God in all of this. It was really rough. It was really, really rough in the middle of all of it to see any um, any help or any help from God. Obviously, he was there, but it, it didn't feel like it. It was a this this process of breaking down, of breaking. Um, this needed to be what it needed to be, and um, I can now look back and say I am, I am grateful for that. And um, it it continues to be difficult, continues to be uh, scary continues to be unsure. I surely in no way want to say, oh, gosh, we got through that because I don't know what getting through anything really means. And I am not naive enough to think that trial and difficulty and uh, pain and suffering are over, that this was it, and here we are, we survived, we're all okay. I don't know, this might be the beginning. Uh, Heaven forbid, hopefully not. But um, I sometimes think of how tragic it would have been uh, to either have taken my life or have died at some point naturally and have left this world with this warped and pained sense of uh, this relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. That I had, that I had been a church leader. That I had taught, and preached, and and interviewed and pleaded and helped and lifted and done everything that I could, and that I could have left this earth so completely far from the most basic foundational relationship that God loves all of His children equally, and that there's nothing that we can do as His children that would ever jeopardize that love. Now, I believe that now, Richard. I could have never and and did not ever believe that. And again, how tragic that would have been um, to have missed the most foundational basic. And I, I sense there might be some other listeners out there that were at this place stuck doing everything they could to please a God that was displeased with them. And it was never enough and will never be enough. Um, we talk about, you know, some great stories in church history and of, of prophet leaders who were cut down, <laughs> you know, by experiences in their life. Man, this was mowed to the ground. This for me was wow. taken right right to the ground. And um, I feel like there was some time there that it might have just been dead and there was no hope for any kind of bounce back or regrowth. It's interesting because everything uh, that was false, that felt true, got uh, destroyed. 
And for some people, that might look scary because even something for me like prayer had to stop. Um, my my frustration with God, my my despair with feeling left alone, um, just the 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 misunderstanding of the whole relationship that I had and I had carried, you know, it was kind of like, it was like a kid at a grocery store wanting candy at the checkout stand and having a fit. And man, I was having a fit. And like most, most strong mothers who just kind of stand there and ignore the fit and go, yeah, I'm not going to fall for that. You're going to be fine. I'm not going to give in. This is what's best. And they just kind of stand their ground, seeing the bigger picture, the the longer haul, the meaning of this down the road, this experience. And I feel like that's where Heavenly Father was with me of just going, yeah, you're really having a pretty big fit. You're having a pretty big fit right now. And uh, that's okay. Um, and then, and, and like, I'm going to show you. I'm not going to talk. We're not talking. You're on the shelf, and you know, and you're mean. Um, it got, it, it, it kind of shook everything. Now, I don't call it a faith crisis, because there's just so many things, Richard, in my life uh, that I could never deny: spiritual experiences, promptings, feelings that I could, I, I would not know where to begin to unravel um, that thread. Now, unfortunately all of these threads of truth and false narrative were quite woven together because it was 40 years of, yeah. of, of the two. I think sometimes it's a, it's a, it might be uh, the experience of some that when they get to that point of crash and, and, and pain, that they just want to cut it all out. You want that pain to go away. You want that to go away. And I think I, I think I get for some people needing to to walk away from their faith, the church, whatever it is. Yeah. But I I think I get why. I think it, it, it and and part of that is this difficulty at that point of going what really was true and what wasn't. Because at that time everything felt like it was it was I like the way you've actually for our listeners, Travis put his fingers together interlocking all twelve how many fingers we have? Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> the visual of that, and then unlocking all, all that, all that, or those incorrect feelings about your orientation yeah. mixed in with truth. It's Margaret, very thoughtful. Margaret was really key in in helping me challenge those narratives, and and the therapist was very key in challenging those false things that I told myself. There were so many things, you know, that that I would just not hear, and you know, and she'd say, you know, and my therapist would say, you know, that's really like weird, no, that's not true, and I'd go, yes, it is, and I think it was many, many times being challenged on many, many false narratives that finally broke through that crust of where I would go, you know, I mean, it was so strange, Richard, that I could see and feel the love of God for everyone I've ever known and loved, especially in leadership responsibilities. I would sit with missionaries in interviews and I could see them as God saw them. And it was so powerful and so beautiful and, and such a, a sacred privilege 
I could, with every confidence in the world, talk about God's love and great pleasure in them. And give blessings to them. And, 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 and give blessings. But I could not imagine or extend to myself that same. I could see it for everybody else, but it was not there for me. It could not be there for me. I would not receive it. I would not allow it. And finally, I've broken through that barrier of going, yeah, the the best I could do was saying, well, he might love me because, man, he sure loves everybody else. So he might, maybe sometimes he does, but that's the best I could do. Whereas I really am like, you know, he's pretty pleased with who I am. And so that... Glad you can say that out loud on a podcast. (laughs) That whole shift... Man, it's been rough because I've had to come back and say, man, I don't want to believe anymore in that God that hated me or that Savior that was disappointed. Um, They're there, but they're not who I made them out to be. And they had to prove to me or they had to break me so or get me to a place where I, I could come back in all, all self-sufficiency stripped away in absolute um, desperation. So I say it's, it was like being broken, um, being drained, and, and having to crawl up out of that has really been a, a most remarkable, beautiful thing. And so I have, I have a set of new eyes, and I have a new heart. It was a pretty good heart, I think, but I feel like it's even better now because I see with a new understanding. I feel with a new understanding. My black and whites just got blown to bits. And there's so many beautiful shades of gray. I've moved away from this uh, behavior, um, you know, prove and show, and you have to toe the line to really, and I don't know how I've missed this in all these years of church service, the first and great commandment to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. I mean, we don't, Richard, we don't talk about that enough. And the second, like unto it, to love our neighbor. And that, you know, those are, those are the two great commandments, and it's on those hang all the law. And I, I just think, um, how did I how did I get stuck up on other things like are you paying a full tithe or you, your church attendance isn't going really well or you don't look like your testimonies ought to be or you're not you know some shady conversation I, it just oh my I goodness like I just got I, I got lost in in uh, I, I was projecting on others my own sense of of, of what I had to do. And uh, for that, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. And for anybody I ever um, wasn't able to, you know, I, I projected that on or did that too. But now it, it, it comes from a beautiful place. I, not to be critical of the church or leaders or any way, but, but I, I feel like I'd love to go to a temple recommend. And I'd love that first question to be, Brother Stewart. Tell me about your relationship with God. Are you loving him with all your heart, mind, and strength? And and for me to have to think about what am I doing, because it's a commandment. What am I doing to keep that commandment? And what would that look like? And then, and then you'd want to pray. 
because that relationship's important. You aren't praying because you have to, or if you say enough prayers, it's going to merit something or fix something. It's you're talking because you love this person and, and you want to have uh, a closeness with your, your heavenly father. Um, and then it would be awesome with the second question that the, the bishop or state president would say, Brother Stewart, tell me about what you're doing to love your fellow man as you love yourself. And then I'd love to have to look at the people in my life uh, that I love and that I also don't love. Because at the end of the day, I think all of this for me is about learning about unconditional love. We, we all say we love unconditionally. We all think we love unconditionally. But we are constantly bombarded with situation and individuals that we don't love. And then we do all sorts of things to justify why we're not loving. Um, that's been really powerful and profound for me. And um, I just want to do better. I want to, I want to, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I want to, I want to hold everybody's hand in whatever those hard things are. Cause it, there's, this is hard. Life is hard. It's not, not just being gay. This mortal experience is rough. Um, it's, it's, it's brutal. I love that temple recommend. I mean, I find that really resonates with me because I probably just have a checkbox mentality at times based on temple recommend questions that I'm good with God and that I'm square with the church and I'm, and it may prevent me from really progressing to be the disciple that God wants me to be by looking at those two questions. And I love where you said it, it would force me to pray more. Um, who wouldn't want to pray if I want to love God with all my heart? And who are those fellow men? And I think I love the way you just offered that up as, as really a higher law and almost in a more simplest, a simple way to live a higher law. And I, I love sort of the direction the church is going in some ways of putting more responsibility on us to get there Yeah. versus... Um, I've thought about this question a lot and I sometimes ask it to my guests in the podcast. Do you think God is up there going, Oh no, what went wrong? Travis is gay. Um, this wasn't the plan. Or do you think God's up there going, this is exactly who Travis is. We've had that conversation, Richard, and I love that you've asked this, you know, you think about right out of the shoot, Adam and Eve with Cain and Abel. Can you imagine the heavenly father going, Oh, dang. We didn't think about siblings. Oh no, you know, uh, surely in unleashing the plan or allowing the plan to begin with allowing Adam and Eve to choose for themselves to partake of the fruit that, that really brought on the great necessary opposition. Um, surely our Heavenly Father and, and Jesus Christ saw the beginning from the end of what that would mean. Surely they saw the pain and the suffering. They, they saw murder. They saw abuse. They, they saw every type of difficult um, challenge that could come upon the earth and to their children. And, and they still, and they still did it. Now it was so important that they lost a third of their children before they even got to that point. I mean, the stakes <laughs> were already super high and they were getting higher now. So 
For me, I just, I think, man, we need to back away from this uh, listing of, of sins in our heads and hearts. You know, there's a lot of things. Sin is sin. And, and we need to quit categorizing sin. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I know we, we ask uh, about certain things, but, you know, people get, you know, as we've talked about behavior and a focus on and a hang up on, on sexual behavior among homosexuals. Um, th- that's not a very great connection. And I, I, I think, well, is, is uh, someone's dishonesty that really they're not talking about, you know, which is a sin. Is that any yeah. less than someone else's behavior, which, you know, is, is judged as something very difficult. Which even God himself delineated that when he said twice, both in the Book of Mormon and also the Doctrine of Covenants, that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. He delineated that for us. But we categorize good sins and bad sins. Like, this is okay and that's okay. But we know we all fall. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us at all times need the Savior. And... um, we're just steeped in trying to decide, you know, like, well, how bad of a sin is this? Well, it's not that bad of a sin. It's sin is sin. The least degree God can't tolerate. Last thing I'd say about that, Richard, is that this was a big shift for me as well, is that I think in the church we've been, um, in a not healthy way, we've picked up on this concept of, of life being a test. You know, you think about tests. Tests are pass-fail, um, final. You know, you're in or you're out. You, you, you're good, you're bad. I, it just it, it seems it doesn't feel right. You know, like yeah, you made it, you didn't. And and we're all frantic trying to make it, and we're looking at all the people that we're thinking aren't going to make it or can't make it. If I make it, they better not make it because I tried harder than they did. I think it's more healthy for us to see see life as what it really is or mortality for what it really is. And that is an experience in opposition. It's, it's a, it's a, an education. It's a curriculum. We, we, we didn't, we didn't come down to white knuckle it. We came down to experience it because how can you want the good if you don't know the bad? And we run from the bad. And I don't think we, we do ourselves or our children or our loved ones any good when we, when we hold or we don't allow them to experience bad. Um, we, you know, bad is just bad. Well, sometimes bad is necessary. And I think we need to learn how to understand and accept and experience bad and learn and grow from it so we can move on to make better decisions in the future. But sometimes I think we we restrict, we restrict every every potential for opposition. In our families, and and what parent doesn't want to protect your kid? But but sometimes that protection is is planting ideas of that, that are wrong, that defeat the very purpose of this experience, or we get it wrong. So we're in, we're in the middle of opposition, we're in the middle of challenge. We see it, we don't see it for what it is. We see it for some scary failure 
oh no, I'm, I'm not I'm passing the, bad. the test now. Yeah, I, I'm not in a test. I, I'm, I'm bad. I've done, I've crossed the line. I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I've, I've, I've messed this up. When really, it's just a custom curriculum. Every one of us are getting the, the exact experiences, I believe, that we need personally to progress the way our Heavenly Father knows we need to progress. And, and, and there are classes that we fly through and we do awesome, and others that we fail miserably in that course. And man, there are repeat courses. I can't tell you how many repeat courses on certain issues. I am, That's cool. I am, I have failed the impatient course <laughs> dozens of times. And that course is, it just keeps coming back and I, I just keep getting signed up for it. And there it is in my face. Um, I think it's just much more healthy to see this is a life of learning and experiencing. And it might just be Richard that some of the paths out into what we might we might label as failures or darkness or bad behavior or poor decisions or bad agency judgment just might be the place that people have to go sometimes to learn the things that they need to learn or th- th- to learn either that this is this is what I want to do or this isn't what I want to do. How can you use your agency really, really, when you you don't have opposition? And we run from opposition. Now, I'm not, I'm in no way, I don't want any, any listeners out there to be thinking, wow, he's like talking crazy, like go out and embrace the bad. No, 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 no. Because of course we all know that's just ridiculous. But I think it's healthy to see opposition for what it really is. Even faith crisis or um, experiencing being gay or all of the other challenges and trials that come in life that put us outside the norm. We, you know, the ideal of, of, a, of a temple marriage, return missionary, you know, that ideal always needs to be there. But I think we also need to understand that it's just the ideal and not everyone will re- meet that ideal in this life. We should try and strive for that ideal, but there's no guarantee that everybody gets that. There will be children who will die and never marry. There will be uh, individuals who will never have the opportunity. There will, there will be all sorts of things that will happen. You, you can't bear children. You uh, Disease, sickness, uh, all of these things that challenge. And if if we could say, but that's still that's still like that. the the goal out there and 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 it may not happen here we are taught that it may happen in the next life but that's only we we only say that next life for yeah for for women who don't get the chance to marry they'll get a really great guy over there or people who didn't get to have children here they'll get a, they'll get to have lots of children over there we 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 act as if that's the makeup place um I, I I don't I don't believe so. I don't think it's the the, the makeup um, for what you didn't get here. We're all getting here exactly what we need here. It's just that we don't see it that way. We think we're supposed to have these rewards or meet this this expectation when really the expectation is for us to be experienced, to be challenged, to be tried, and in those processes that it turns us to become the very people that God needs us to be. I love that. I just think you're teaching the doctrine of Christ. 
What could ward and work people say or not say that know you're gay? So if I'm your in your ward or a coworker, I may know your story, I may know you're gay. Um, would you like them to talk about it? Would you like them not to talk about it? Is it very individual? <laughs> just if if it's helpful for everybody oh, just you. to hear yeah. your thoughts on what your your close friends, coworkers should or should not be at, should, talking to you about. You know, I, I appreciate you answering asking that because I, I can on, honestly answer to it because I feel like if I say, hey, will you all do this? Then I just sound like this whiny, demand, demanding, needy person. This is my take on that subject, uh, Richard. I do have a bit of passion about this. Um, and, and this is, uh, please, anyone who I know and love or I work with or <laughs> you're in my life, this is, this is not a reflection on anybody individually and personally. Um, I just want to be honest about this, and, and I am not judgmental in this. Um, so what happened... Richard, when I, when I came out, you know, officially, I guess, publicly, and, and I'm out enough, you know, I participated on another podcast. I participated in a, in a music video where it was pretty obvious that, holy cow, look who that is. And um, what, what happened for me is in, in really truly being completely open is that my shame is gone. It's just, it's been one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. There's nothing to be ashamed of because there's nothing to hide and there's no one to hide from. As beautiful as that is, it's also created an, an, a, a different, and I don't want to call it a problem, a different challenge is that, that that suffocating elephant in my room of shame, that uh, it really got obliterated. When I, when I spoke my truth and when I, I owned up to this reality in my life, it shifted that elephant off of me and many pieces of it have landed in all of the people in my life, in their lives. Does that make sense? It does. So suddenly they know something about me that they didn't know before and they don't know what to do about it. Um, and part of that is, is on one hand they're saying, um, this is what it means to be gay. They're at their own personal place of, of trying to decide what that means for them. And, and, and that could be all over the place for the people in my life. Some may be extremely homophobic and, and, and it may come from lots of things that not necessarily they've, they've, you know, have experienced or something. Um, at the other end of that, they might be so totally um, good with, with, gay, that they're all about um, same-sex marriage and, and, and doing, you know, that that's the way to live and, and be true to yourself. So, and then everybody's in between there somewhere. They don't know what to make of it. What does it mean? Why would you use the term gay? Why are you even talking about this? Uh, a, a lot of awkwardness for them. So wherever they are with that issue, that's where they are. And I honor that and I respect that. And then in their lives, because they're in my life, they're saying, here's Travis Stewart, um, my coworker, my mission president, my former bishop, my neighbor, um, my friend, my sibling, whatever. And they're thinking, this is what I know about him. You know, this is what, how I feel about him. They've made decisions through their experience with me 
and they have judgments about me because of, of how they've known me. And some know me more intimately and better than others. And so they're at different levels of that. What's now happened is these, these two aspects of what they think about gay and who I am have, have, have come together. They've intersected. And now they're, they're like, wait, a, wait a minute. Um, either gay is not what I thought it was because this is Travis or Travis is not who I thought he was because this is what gay is. Wow. And, and I get that, man. I, I, I get that. And I honor that where everyone is. And I just invite them to, um, to, to move forward in, 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 in taking, taking the chance to learn more about what that might mean for him. Because I don't want, I didn't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. I always feared that this would be the case. In fact, most of my fears about coming out, Richard, every fear I had to one degree or another, I believe has come true. Mom. Um, even though everybody said, oh no, it's no big deal. It'll be okay. No, to one degree or another, it's, there's no, there's, there's no easy way through this. And so I would, I would, I would say to these people, you know, Hey, I, I, I love you. I, I, it's, it's your journey. And, and it's something I can't fix for you. I can't fix for you because I've spent my whole life trying to fix everybody and everybody had to be okay. So I could be okay. Well, I learned how that, that, that narrative wasn't a bad one. You know, you are where you are. And, and, um, if I can help, let me know. But I'm not assuming anything. I'm not assuming you're homophobic. I'm not assuming you you suddenly have lost respect for me. I'm just not thinking about it. But my life has gotten pretty quiet. You know how, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, when you don't know what to say, you don't say anything. When you when you come across uncomfortable or difficult or challenging situations, you know, when someone loses a spouse or a child, and you know, you, you just feel for them, but you don't know what to say, so you and you don't want to say something dumb or so wrong. You pull away. So you pull away, and 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 you, you you don't feel like you're pulling away, you just kind of go quiet and awkward, and and it's a very brave thing to step into something awkward that you don't know about and aren't sure about and to try and and talk about it. Now, I have to admit there have been some courageous souls um, in my employment uh, from my mission, our missionaries um, from church who have, who have bravely, and man, I count it as one of the most brave things I've ever seen, who have, who have come to me and just flat out said, Hey, I, I saw a video or I heard a podcast or I heard, I heard you're gay, man, I got some questions for you or cool. Can I, can we talk about and it? Do you like those kind oh, of conversations? It's like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> so those, How brave of you. How wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, and go out to lunch or just, yeah, I, you'd I, be glad I, to oh, talk I, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I just feel like that is, even if they ask awkward questions. Sure. Or, oh, there's no awkward questions. I just feel like that's the greatest, one of the the most tenderest, sweetest gifts that people give me. And, I, and again, I'm not shaming anybody out there who hasn't and can't and doesn't feel inclined. I, you know, I don't want 
everybody to hear this and come thinking they have to fix this with me. I get it. And, and I, I love you and I'm, I'm not judging you. It's just gotten, it, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a lonely place to be when everybody else is not sure what to do. And, you know, we're three years in of being out pretty public and, and I'm just to the point where I just, I'm, I don't think about it anymore and I'm just plopping through life. And, um, and then someone will say something or something will happen and I'll go, oh yeah, oh yeah, you are not gay, you know, <laughs> or, oh yeah, oh, um, which has been a, a great gift because normally uh, something that would have, would have absolutely sunk me, Richard, was uh, obsessing about what everybody was thinking about me. I've spent 40 years of my life obsessing about what everybody would think or could think that now I, now here I am with the, the, the biggest secret in my life out. And I never, I never have had a moment of worry of what, what are they thinking? Are they, are they grossed out? Are they, um, that's been a gift, um, from God and a, a comforting thing. Um, it just is what it is. And I'm, I'm just pound forward. I'm not Mr. Poster boy for anything. I'm not, I'm, I'm not on a, a mission to save the world or, you know, to fix everything for anybody or show someone how to do it. This is just, my, this is my experience. This is our experience. And this is what I'm learning from it. And, um, and I'm happy to talk about it. I, I, I can't bear the thought of anyone ever being where I was alone in that pain and shame and suffering. It's just so unnecessary. And, you know, inadvertently in our fears and in our worries about saying the wrong thing or not knowing what to say, we leave too many people there. And, uh, in this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. This ought to be the place where we are absolute pros at this. If we are disciples of Christ, we, we ought to just be the ones who know how to, it, it ought to be innate. Sure wasn't for me. I have just, a, long, a lot of, a long way to go. But What would you say to closeted LGBTQ people that feel like they just feel impressed to stay closeted. Well, I, I honor their decision. I, I, I understand. I, I get it. I understand the fear, the pain, the shame uh, of all the ways you potentially could lose everything. I understand that they have narratives that are, are real and powerful. Um, but at the same time, because of my own experience, I feel like there are there are narratives there in everybody's life who is closeted that absolutely are not true, and they need to be challenged. That's helpful. And and so not that like could I'm, be corrected without coming out. Yeah, and I feel like it's just That's really interesting. I feel like it's just hey, you know, yeah, but I that is not true. No, you are not broken. No, everyone in the world isn't going to hate you. Um. And I think just, I think like what, what was helpful for me was that I had people that I loved and I trusted who challenged those narratives. Now, I think everybody has to do it on their own, in their way, when they're ready. I just totally respect that. And anything or any attempt on anyone else's part to drag it out or force it out 
or push it out or shame it out um, is is absolutely one of the most terrible, um, cruel things that you could do to someone who is in that closet. So if I'm a parent and suspect I've got an LGBT kid, the general direction would be not to pull that kid out of the closet. I, I, I absolutely think that, that you should not. Now, I think you can, you can create an environment that they may want to come out to the clo- out of the closet to you. And, and, and that's just done by, you know, the, the way you talk about that issue, you, you know, all issues, not just that, but how open are you to a lot of hard things? And a lot of, what are your judgments? What are the things you say? What do you say about others? I, I remember a young man not too long ago who, he said, I was in my ward and my bishop before a sacrament meeting and the announcements, he said, I just want everybody to know here, I've had this thought that there's a lot about LGBTQ issues that I don't understand, but I want to understand. And I want, I want everybody in this congregation to know that if that's something you're experiencing or you have someone in your life you're experiencing, that that I have great respect for those people and I want to understand more. And, that's so cool. And that I'm a place you can come. And he just said, man, that was the deal breaker for him to, to have someone. And again, it wasn't, I think it's kind of like that flock shooting. We're always throwing out things that say, hey, <laughs> I I don't know who this is for or I don't know who in my life, but... I love God and I love all his children and, and I don't know the answers to everything. And man, there are a lot of hard struggles in life. Um, I think we throw those things out and we never know where they're going to come back and where they're going to land and what that will do for someone who will need to trust someone to come out to. So I think parents just creating that environment of where we can handle anything we're not perfect. We are. I want to speak to that too, because one of the things that I have learned, we have, we have a son who is gay and, um, and that was an interesting journey watching that. But one thing that I've learned is, um, I would rather deal in realities than I would try to nurse denial and pretend or like try to manipulate or manage how you think and what you do and, and hover and watch. But for me, it is like, learn to accept that where things are, they are. And your own title of your um, podcast to listen, to learn and to love. If those were the mandates, like I can, I can listen, I can say to my child. And I did, I knew he wasn't comfortable to talk about it. At one point I said, just so you know, this was after we attended a North star conference and I'd heard so many stories and I went, there's power in real and true life. And I said to him, I shared some stories of people that I'd met there. And I said, um, I want you to know that if you're ever ready or you ever want to talk about your journey, I don't care what it includes because it's your real life and I'm interested in your life. And if you ever want to tell it, I want to hear it. And we've not had that conversation, but we've had other conversations where he knows that we we want to know his real life. We don't worry that we have to fix it for him. And there are scary places in our minds that it's like, okay, this is something we don't understand, but we don't have to. We don't have to know that to love him and to be able to go, we'll sit with you in this. We'll all sit there and, and not know outcomes. And if you do create that kind of a situation in your family where you can talk about it, um, then that door is open 
whether or not they walk through it, at least they know. I love that, Margaret. You know, one other comment, if I could, Richard, on the other side of that, uh, people, you know, either coming out as they can or when they can. Another really um, rough and cruel response, and I, I can't for the life of me think why people feel like they want to or would ever say, yeah, I knew, or yeah, I, I always knew that. I knew you were gay. Um, that is that is such a... It, it, there's not anything... It's not anything good in it. There's not anything productive, but 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 extremely distressing, and demoralizing, and destructive. Um, I I don't care how much anybody thought they knew or how obvious it was to them. Why why you would ever think you would have to say to somebody, yeah, you were you were hiding this all along, but I knew. What sort part of back to you instead of making it about the other person exactly. it's about you, which is what your wife didn't do uh, yeah. that morning. Yeah, and it's something like I don't know. Do you think do you, do you get brownie points because you knew, or do you think you have yeah. a superpower? Or that is that's a that's very that's a helpful. Very, that's a very unhealthy, unnecessary, um, hurtful um, thing to say. And I would invite your your listeners to. You know, if, if you thought or whatever you knew, just keep it to yourself. That, that's such a great principle of ministering. A, there's just nothing productive of talking about that. How have your missionaries responded? Oh, you have 500 dear. missionaries that yeah, served in Houston man. that our, learned about rain and your love for you oh, and good Texas people. If, if this isn't like too super obnoxious, for me to do on your podcast, Richard. Any of you missionaries out there are hearing Sister Stewart and I, we love you. We miss you. We think of you. We pray for you. We rejoice in you. Um, and you will always be ours and you will always be dear to us. I don't necessarily want to take this opportunity, Richard, to say, uh, use this as a platform to say, I hope you're all okay with this because this isn't um, something for me to have to be okay that for them to have to be okay with. Um, of course, there's a part of me that goes, wow, that's like super weird to find out your mission president's gay 10 years after he was your mission president. Um, I, I would say to them, you know, I'm still me. We're still us. Nothing's changed. Well, lots changed, <laughs> but lots of good things have changed. Um, I'm, you know, there's a part of me that, that wishes I could have uh, earlier in my life addressed and talked about this. Um, there's a worry that people think that I was dishonest. I, um, I never asked for this. I've never wanted this. How could I talk about it? And... Um, for me, uh, a difficult part of this journey that probably has been exacerbated in a way that probably most people can't understand is, you know, when, when you're, you're trying to be a good boy and a good person and you do good things and people see you're, you're trying to be a good person and you do good things and you're dependable, then they ask you to do more good things and become, um, you become 
more experienced and more dependable. And they, so, you know, when we got married, I was already serving as a counselor in a branch presidency. So from the moment we got married, we didn't sit together at church. We've been married 34 years and probably, I don't know, 28 of those 34 of probably or more have been me sitting on the stand in some capacity, either as a high counselor, young men's president, stake presidency, mission president, bishop. With each one of those um, calls to serve was just a tremendous um, amount of additional burden that probably any of you listening can imagine. Uh, and, a, and a bit of a wrestle because, um, you know, God only, you know, God calls <laughs> who he needs and he knows who's prepared and perfect and worthy. And, and you know, my inner conflict was, well, God knows this. If, if others knew this, they wouldn't call me. So honest. So I'm not talking about it, but yet I'm, I'm getting asked to do things. And so that um that pressure of feeling like uh i shouldn't be doing this but yet callings come from god so that constant confusion well if this is of god how how could this be of god because god hates me god's really freaked out about me but how could this not be of god so are these leaders getting this wrong um so that, that inner turmoil with every call to serve. And then also un- upping the ante each time of the potential disaster if this were known. Um, and then just building with, with every new calling to, to the point of where you're, you're sitting across the table from prophets, seers, and revelators, these people you know that we believe can see right through you and know everything. And they're asking you to serve as a mission president. You think, oh, today's the day that they will go, you sinner, bad gay man, get out. Wow. Um, and instead, they're they're kind, and they're uh, trusting you, and they call you to do something sacred. Um. I just want anybody I've ever served with or worked with or presided over in any capacity in any way to know I'm just still me. And uh, it was real. It's always been real. And uh, I I don't see that this made any difference. Uh, I can say that now because that's a narrative I've had to work really hard on. Um. But uh, it was real, and I was honest in my effort to do my very best with what I knew how to do. And uh, if that's too hard for some of you or anybody in my life, I'm sorry. Um, but but I, 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 I don't know how I can help you with that. I'd, you know, I'd love to talk through and whatever that might look, I, I don't want anybody to feel bad or feel uh, upset or worried or anxious about um, what that might have meant to them while I served with them. 
Margaret, your thoughts. It's got tears in your eyes as your <laughs> husband just bears his soul. <laughs> and you want me to talk. <laughs> okay. Um, that was so tender. That's one of the most tender moments we've ever had on a podcast. I just want to be a second witness to uh, the fact that, you know, what's interesting is I don't know why we do this, why we get this culture of thinking that someone's good if they behave well or they never have a bad thought or they never have a temptation when we know that that temptation is common and, and just a part of our existence. But I do know that uh, I've been at Travis's side through these 34 years and he says often, you know, I've, I've had to drag you through this and I've dragged you through that. And, um, we, I can testify that he was called of God and I've had my own, uh, sacred experiences with being given that knowledge. And I don't have a lot of answers for people who are going, wait a minute, that's not how it works. That's not the norm. I can tell you that I believe strongly that within the sound of our voice this very minute, there are all kinds of people serving the best they know how who experience same-sex attraction or other kinds of um experiences that lie outside of social norms. And if you look in the scriptures and you really pay attention to families and individuals, you will see all kinds of weakness. And uh, God calls the weak or people that other people wouldn't call because he sees their heart. And I can stand as a witness of his heart that I know there was never a moment of um, posturing like I'm important or I'm good because I have this call, but deep, deep responsibility for, I want to help. And, um, I absolutely know that that's true. I know it can be so confusing to people, but again, I feel to say, make space for what you feel uncomfortable with and don't understand because in that space, you know, like, if somebody were to say to Travis or to talk to him, just this, just tell me, tell me about your experience. Just that, not, gosh, I have this question and you need to answer for me so I can feel okay. Rather, it's just, I want to learn. I want to be, be with you in this experience. I'll have more questions. We have more questions. We don't have all the answers for this, but but just that, that, that you can be in a situation and be uncomfortable and it doesn't mean bad things. It's good to have to stretch. Um, and that pattern is there in the scriptures. That pattern is there in the lives of our, of our prophets and our church history and why we miss it, why we think our lives are supposed to look squeaky clean, clean with no problems and no challenges. I don't know why we believe that because we can read the scriptures, but we don't see the real people there. We don't see who Christ loved, who others marginalized, wouldn't touch them, wouldn't talk to them, 
culturals, cultural things and race things and um, Gentiles and Samaritans or whoever, the, the leprous, whatever. Christ never looked on that. It was individuals and... And so I would, I, I don't have any problem saying that I know that God called him to those experiences to bless and help, um, those he ministered to and, and still does those, those, so many of those individuals from our stake and our mission and, and our lives still literally seek blessings at his hands. And I know what I feel and I know what I've experienced. And um, uh, there's just no doubt in my mind that God knows exactly what he's doing, even though we may not. This is a beautiful love story with the two of you. I'm pressure comes to my mind is just people listening to this podcast that you've blessed with tears in their eyes of gratitude for how you bless them. And another just impression that if Heavenly Father could be here, he, he would tell you, you've blessed more lives than you'll ever know in your service. And an impression that missionaries, you know, this is a probably go present Sister Stewart or safe for me to talk to about anything. I can always go to them because they're willing to be real about their lives. And so I can be real in return. And then a hope that more people... I've always wished there were role model LGBTQ people serving in leadership, and I don't know what your callings are now, but I would guess it's hard right now where the church is right now to call, even though you're worthy for any calling. You know, I would hope that there's a gay bishop, a gay stake president, a gay mission president that's out, that's identifying as gay, that's living the teachings of the church, that's committed to the gospel, and is being called to those callings because. Why? Because I think they're really good at those callings, just like you've been. And two, it gives vision for our younger LGBTQ people because most of the examples they see are outside of the church and they need role models in the church. And I felt more would stay if they have. And where we're really putting our LGBTQ members to work to help us to become the body of Christ that God wants us to be because of their unique gifts. That's just part of my hope for the future. It's beautiful. We agree. We do agree. And and again, it's interesting because Satan has been very effective and the world has been very effective as at labeling someone who is gay, that it, that the primary attribute is their attraction to the same sex where that is just a very, that's a real. Yeah. We call straight people to be bishops and stake presidents and they have attractions and- and do they have any more inclination? This is the yeah. thing where I think we, we misunderstand. Gay people don't have any more inclination to sin than heterosexual people right. do. But we believe they do. <laughs> Some people do believe they do. Um, I want to just shift topics a little bit. Um, Ed Smart, who people may know in Salt Lake City, came out as gay and his marriage is ending. This has happened in the summer of 2019. And I don't know Ed Smart, and I don't know much about the story, although I've really admired him for what he's done with Elizabeth and with the foundation that that family has started. And I've so I've had a great deal of respect for Ed, and I, I'm always mourn when a marriage ends. And Ed coming out as gay seemed to be kind of concurrent with his marriage ending, and I, I think Ed may have stepped away from the church. I don't know that. I haven't talked to Ed or read everything that he's said. And so... As I saw that marriage end, I saw a lot of 
um, judgment going towards Ed. And maybe rightly so, maybe not. I'd, but then I saw your two posts, and I'm actually going to hand them to you. <laughs> I don't know if you want to read them or just talk about them, but I loved what you both said on Facebook um, regarding this situation. Um, I, and both of your posts I saw and printed out here. Margaret, do you, well, Travis, you, I saw your post first, and then Margaret kind of followed up with her thoughts on your post. Do you want to either share that, read that, or just share sure. your thoughts? Sure. Um, you know, initially, Richard, when I, I saw that, my heart just uh, broke for this man. I, I think we're pretty close in age and probably children and marriage and experience in the church and and all I could think was, man, I know where you've been. This is this has been, you know, you've had your four decades of hell and pain, and uh, and it's culminated in in in, in a decision. Um, and it's kind of sad that it's just the decision that you're divorcing. That's you know, there there was no. First of all, I I also had great sympathy for and empathy for him that. There was no, it was a lose-lose in, in this coming out. He, you know, how, how can you be private? If he wanted to be private, he couldn't be private. And, um, and of course, because of a, a tragic, a terrible tragic, the worst tragedy that could happen in a parent's life, he was brought into the spotlight. And then um, to come back and to be kind of brought back in and, and used kind of used as a, as a something. I just thought there's just no winning for this man. He, he's doomed at every, every turn, every decision he makes, every word he speaks. And I just, I just, uh, I told Margaret, I just said, I, I, this is one of those moments that I can't sit back and just watch him get, you know, beat to pieces. And so I thought, well, I, you know, what can I do? Because there was a lot of social media judgment and uh, such going on. And and so I just, uh, I, I sent a, a post and I just addressed it and I'll read it here. To all my friends, I feel to share this article with you all today and invite you to consider a couple of things as you process this, meaning Ed Smart's announcement that the media had made. I feel so deeply for Ed Smart, his wife and his family, and believe I know something of their pain and suffering. Please know that there are so many very real and difficult complexities to this situation that have led to such gut-wrenching decisions. It can be hard for us to make sense of things that we do not experience. I'd like to I'd like to emphasize that, Richard. You know, there's so many things that we don't experience that we have no business really weighing in on. And I don't know why our tendency is to think we we need to or we have to or should. Um, God isn't asking us to understand everything. We can't. There is only one who does. Um, and that's Christ. And he does, however, ask us to love unconditionally and leave the judgment to him. He does ask us to have compassion for all and not just for those we can understand. Perhaps that is what these experiences are all about, to help us practice loving unconditionally. I am no poster boy for what Ed Smart should be doing, and I believe he would not want to be a poster boy for what I am expected to do. I hear and honor his need to be open and honest about his difficult journey and invite all of you to do the same. 
Um, I don't know Ed Smart. I I just honor um, and hear um, his story, and that's that's all it is. And uh, it's a painful one that I I know personally, and I'm I'm the last to cast any judgment of what it ought to be. And uh, and then we pray and hope for he and his family of who of surely this has been difficult and, and, and you know so what it went a different way um, that, that that is that, that doesn't matter that that's inconsequential he's a human he's a child of God he's as, he's as wonderful and worthy before God as any one of us and uh, we should be trying to mourn with him and his family and what this has meant to all of them and, um, and not armchair quarterback it because um, that's in the end that's what it is when we talk about things that we really don't we're not in the game we're not suited up on the field in that marriage and in that life and in that head and in that heart it's just not a great place to be thrilling thank you Margaret um, I feel like one of the lessons I have learned over the last few years now, there have been multiple people who have um, shared openly in public forums their experience with same-sex attraction and uh, been, you know, uh, keeping the commandments and, and keeping their covenants the best they knew how and, and who have at some point or other in their journey decided either as a single person I'm, I'm going to um, have a same-sex partner or I am married to someone and I'm, I'm not going to stay married to them anymore. And not very long ago, I mean, these, these are always very disturbing and they're very, they rock your world a lot because you're like, Oh no, is that the inevitable? Is that how this is going to go? And this is going to, this is going to be, um, one of the things that happened to me one time, there was a couple, they were both therapists and they announced publicly on Facebook, uh, they had been, they had been advocates for, you know, mixed orientation marriage. I have issues with that because it implies things and it brings definitions that aren't necessarily always accurate. And that's the same with the term of being gay. And, and I, I get frustrated because we just take it at face value as this is what that means. And you yourself said, you know, I, I thought that all mixed orientation marriages were doomed. But I remember very distinctly, I was terrified to read their blog because I'm like, I don't want to see things in there that are going to make me feel like I'm going to fail or we're going to fail. But I had a very calm, peaceful feeling come over me of like, no, you need to look at their experience and you need to hear what they have to say. And, and I, and I, and there were difficult things for me to hear. And, and, and yet I was able to go, you know what, this is your experience and this is your interpretation of your experience. And I'm just looking at what you're saying. And when I finished their blog, again, when God sends revelation to me, it's very short and to the point. And the thing that came into my head is this is not the end of their story. They have daughters. They have a family. They have shared years together with each other <laughs> and and the world wants to say, and they divorced, period. That's it. That's the end. That's the end of the story. It didn't work out. They, they, and it was really interesting because I think I was terrified of coming to that conclusion. But as I finished, I thought, 
this is not the end of their story. And so very often, you know, unlike with Ed, same thing, same thing. He has a family and he spent all these years with his wife and I don't know either of them either. But in Travis sharing his experience, the, the, the post that I put after was simply this. I invite the same compassion that Travis Stewart has called us to while also offering one insight. I've been at his side, meaning Travis, for years now, hearing him share his story. And one of the first things he shared with me that tender morning he first opened up was his fear of everyone's judgment and agenda for him if he openly shared his experience. I have witnessed that play out over and over again. He often says, I'm too gay for some, and I'm not gay enough for others. The observation I want to share is is that if individuals need to talk about any difficult or perplexing aspect of their lives, it usually isn't because you or I need to hear it. It is because they need to say it. They need to own it for themselves. They need witnesses for their real life. There are many who, for their own reasons, do not share their feelings or thoughts, and that's fine too. I have found that making room for my discomfort with others' experiences that I don't understand, while withholding judgment, creates a space for learning and for love. Um. I love both those Facebook posts. Really, you know, just to me, they're grounded in our doctrine of not judging and leaving it all to the Savior's feet and showing love. And we're sad in marriage ends. And you worry, honestly, Margaret, that you fear that that when you hear these stories. But I love the way you face that fear head on by reading that blog and then seeking personal revelation. I think that's who you are, Margaret. (laughs) You sort of face the fears, both of you, head on and then look to our doctrine. And and fear and shame are two of greatest Satan's tools as you're teaching us. And I think you've done a great job of just getting fear and shame out. And I'm just, I, you know, we had a, we did a podcast the early one before this one that's released by the time you hear it of a woman whose husband and son died by suicide. It wasn't LGBTQ related. And she has seven children and her oldest son's gone and her husband's gone and she's about 40. And she talked about, I don't have judgment for anybody anymore. That angry person in the parking lot, there's something going on there. There's something in that iceberg going down. And I just thought how interesting that as we get stretched and we have to walk difficult roads, that one of the Christ-like attributes that comes into us is reflected by your two posts is no judging. No armchair quarterback. I love that. Kind of think of that from a Monday morning looking at my sports teams, thinking what they did or didn't do. (laughs) Just so, th- any thoughts, more thoughts you want to share beyond your Facebook posts? Just on, in, in that light, as Margaret said, you know, it isn't over. I don't think she's implying that, you know, they'll probably get back together. Or they could. It's like anybody in wherever they are with whatever they're doing, whatever their trial, their challenge, their, their decisions, their judgments, whatever. It, it, we always jump to this finality of the moment. You know, you've done this or you're doing that. So, you know, we, we almost write them off when I, I don't think God ever writes anybody off. It's not over till it's over. And I don't think it, I don't, I don't think that even means when you die. I think you get on, I mean, there's, there's a lot of chaos from this earth 
that there wasn't some great resolution or great opportunity for resolution or even a great opportunity for for change. And so I have I have a lot I'm banking a lot, Richard, on the spirit world and the millennial reign for people to play out the final parts of of this experience of mortality and then and for many um immortality having lost the body you know having the body and then you don't have it anymore but you keep living on and you're still learning and growing and dealing with with stress and change and i, I don't know so you know it's not over until the judgment and, and who knows um i think uh my parents divorced when I was three, and I never knew my father. I never saw him ever in my life. Wow. And I had a, I've had a lot of pain and hurt from that. And anger. Rightly so. You know, and, and, um, and I've, I've gotten to this place where, you know, it was what it was. He was where he was and couldn't do what he, you know, I thought he should have and could have done. And um, he, he, died when I was 22 and uh, I didn't have the chance to, to meet him and, and uh, try something there, but he's been gone now for 30 years probably. And, um, I think, man, there's sure a lot that's happened to me in the last 30 years. I bet there's a lot that's happened with him. That's cool. And I look forward to meeting him. That's cool. He's, he's not the man he was, you know, um, 50 plus years ago when, when I last saw him and, uh, you know, maybe he's doing better. Maybe he's doing worse. I don't know. Maybe I'll be doing worse. Um, but, but I look forward to this place of, of, of catching up with people who had more time to work through their, their, their stuff. And, uh, uh, we we got to let go of this finality here of right now and this that choice or that decision. This this, you know, we we kind of look at his divorce as oh there's there's the failure of everything and you know or or not getting this job or not having that or or this early death or this it, it just feels like it. and of course scriptures like you know this life is the time to prepare to meet God you know it is but it doesn't say because you're not going to get a chance when you're you know we. We we write things in that I don't think are there, um, and I just feel like we all just need to kind of back away and loosen up and go. You know, this is going to work out. This is going to work out pretty good for everybody. I think for most everybody. Love that. And I just I just look forward to the resolution that only a savior can bring. And, and and sometimes we feel like it has to happen in mortality through repentance. You have to repent while you're alive. Well, we know there's a whole lot of people that, that don't even get to know of a Savior and die. And then we think, well, but boy, they knew. They knew better, and so we, we write them off. I just think, man, it's so freeing to not have to worry and care and, and judge. We just get to love and encourage and accept because we all want that why wouldn't we want to extend it uh, to everyone else? So I just, I think, you know, the stories aren't done. Love that. Everything hasn't played out. It's not over till it's really, really over. And that's a long way out. 
millennial reigns, 2,000 or 1,000 oh, years. It's 1,000 years. So, I mean, it's 1,000 plus still. So much hope in that. <laughs> it's a lot can happen in 1,000 years, right? Let me read one quote, and then we've got to bring this podcast to a close. I love the podcast format because it is a long story format, and I've learned these podcasts, people stay right to the end. They may stop it and come back, and we're... But I think all of our listeners, if they could talk to you, would say thank you for the longer version of your story. It could still be longer, but it's so helpful. And I came across this quote, Kurt Nielsen sent it to me. He's um, uh, coincidentally gay man in a mixed orientation marriage um, in the church. And it's from Henry Noren, a Catholic priest. And over the last few years, I've been increasingly aware that true healing mostly comes through sharing of weakness. Now, I don't want to infer that being LGBTQ is a weakness. Um, most, mostly, we're afraid of our weaknesses, that we hide them at all costs and thus make them unavailable to others and often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires. One life in which we present ourselves to the world to ourselves, to God as the person who is in control, and another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, and anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives cause a lot of suffering. I become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming this great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to agree that, to agree that I was able to share my weaknesses with others. Often I became aware of the fact that in sharing my weaknesses with others, and I don't want to infer being LGBT as a weakness, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinful started to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is investing up and building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my most profound dependence on others and of God, then I can then I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. So I just love that quote. It's beautiful. Um, it's really sort of the beautiful. same doctrine you you're teaching Thank us. You. Thanks for sharing that. Margaret, would you do you have any last thoughts or things we didn't get to that you have to share? <laughs> you can take as much time as you want. And we'll let Travis do the same. Oh, it's um I did think a lot about in preparation for this podcast, because we both have, we've had discussions about, you know, what have we learned and what have we experienced and how has this been for us? And I've told some friends that our experience with, um, with Travis coming out and us really looking, and I, I've had to do my own introspection. I'll just share one thing that has been really profound for me is that I have learned what a raging codependent I was. Um, and that, uh, that I, I can, I can and do handle things. Okay. It isn't Travis's responsibility. He hasn't dragged me along on anything. My agency has been fully operative in this full experience. And I've been astounded at, at what I've learned and what I've chosen. And, um, that, that sometimes, you know, it can look like, and I know there, there are individuals who are like, Oh, poor Margaret. And what is she experiencing? What is she, what is she feeling? And like, for me, it is, I have been fully aware antennas up, mind going prayers offered scripture studied, 
listening to podcasts, talking to people and trying to learn, to learn what the truth is. Um, and one thing I have come to understand and appreciate is, you know, here's an interesting fact. There are 11 different means of intimacy that humans can experience between each other. Um, of course, your emotional, uh, spiritual, sexual, but there are many others, creativity, crisis, resolution, work, aesthetics. Um, there's so many ways that Travis and I, uh, independent of sexuality alone, are deeply compatible and intimate. And uh, we get to decide. I mean, people have interesting questions, and it usually all hinders on, well, what about sex? Like, you know, it, it, and it's interesting to me, like, why is that where we always go? Yeah. And even the term same sex attraction makes it seem like that's the only important part of the experience, and people don't look or care to look at the whole rest of the experience because they're just terrified by that one thing. But for me, I've come to understand that, um, none of us choose God. None of us make it to the celestial kingdom. We won't nobody. nobody will be suddenly surprised going, Oh really? I made it. Oh gosh, I had enough good marks that I made it. You'll know. And I have come to understand that I, God has made me fully aware of, um, the things that he knows and, and that he wants me to know. And my, my agency has been fully operative in this whole experience and has been beautiful. I've come to trust him and know him and to know Travis and to trust him on a level that, you know, we were just babies. I often tell him we're all just kids on the playground. Anyway, we think when we grow up, we're really something because we got bank accounts and house payments and, we're still just kids on the playground trying to figure it out. And God is very merciful knowing we can only know what we know. He'll help us to the next level. Very often that's through pain and confusion where we have to do some soul searching, but that stretching offers us the ability to become. And so I, I don't fear the future. I don't focus on outcomes. Um, you know, I had a friend say to me one time, are you going to stay married to him? Like, how could you do that? What if he does something? <laughs> and I looked at her and I'm like, well, what if you do something? Well, what if your husband is doing something and you don't even know, like, what if I do something? Because it's not about the behavior, anybody, we all have the capacity to sin. Whatever those sins look like, they estrange us from God. And he constantly invites us to come back to him by showing us we can't do it without him. So I implicitly trust this journey. And I implicitly trust my savior to save, to heal, to lead, to show the way, to give answers, even if they're very small, <laughs> they're enough, you know? So, um, to anyone who's listening, I would say the same thing. We're not the poster children for how this ought to be, but we are the witnesses of our own lives and our own agency and our own dependence upon God to uh, move us forward, whatever that looks like in the future. It's beautiful. I have a question for you um, that just came to my mind. As a mother, will you speak to other mothers listening that have adult children that have stepped away? You, like m many and maybe most LDS parents of six adult children, would have some 
that have stepped away, and that's true of your family. What would you say to those other mothers that are really worried about those kids? Um, I'm glad you're asking me this because this is something that I've had, I've had mom shame plenty. What I came to realize is that my worry about myself being a good mom often projected onto my children. Like if they behave this certain way, that makes that I'm a good mom. I'm doing what I should be doing. So for many LDS or any kind of faith mothers who watch their children struggle with their faith, often the feeling is one of failure. I have not had enough family home evenings. I've not prayed enough. I've not helped them have their own testimonies. I I had an epiphany one day when talking with a friend and, and now really listen to this because this is important. We were talking about mazes or like labyrinths and these, these puzzles that you go in, or if you've only ever been in a corn maze, okay, let's use that. But, um, very often the path in a maze for a time leads you away from the ultimate goal. And And I believe and know God has given me to know that my children's faith is, is between him and them. And that if for a time they, their journey takes them away from God, it will give them the experience of knowing what it feels like to move away from him for a time. Then they're left with the decision of, do I, how do I, how do I get back? But it will always be between them and God and not, but not me standing in the middle telling them, go this way, go this way, go this way. You need to do this. It's as parents, the best that we can do is connect our children to God and help them know truly there's nothing they can do or not do that will ever change his love. Never. He will never stop loving and he will always be working for us. And he is never going, well, that was stupid. And now you're done. It's God will save the works of his hands. Christ will save us if we choose to follow him. And sometimes we have to know that moving away from to appreciate what it feels like to move towards. So I would say, let go of the fear, have faith, know that he's got them. You're not their savior and you can trust them. They're good. If you remove the the training wheels, they'll learn how to bike. And if you're always there hovering, the message they get is you don't trust me. You don't think I can do this. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm bad, you know? And, uh, so I would say, put your hand firmly in God's and let their lives, especially as adults play out. And one of the things we always talk about to each other is, do our children know how we feel about this? Let's say one of my, our children, uh, drinks or does drugs or is, is, you know, having sex outside of marriage or whatever it might be that are really the things, you know, in the church, like we don't do these things. What if they're doing them? Do they know us well enough to know how we would feel about that? And if they do, we don't need to say anything. We don't need to hold that over their heads. We don't have to teach them a lesson. We just need to make a space where they know we're aware and we accept you. We're not condoning, but we're also not condemning. We're not saying this shouldn't be your experience because it is a lot of people's experiences or how else do they know to choose God if they don't know what it feels like to not have him in their lives. And so 
there's so many things we look at that end up being about us and trying to make us feel better about our, our job. Trust that God knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing with Alma the Younger. He knows what he was doing with Job. He knows what he's doing, even though from the outset to us, it looks like destruction and, and a bad thing. Um, if you ask him, he will tell you. Love that. So glad you answered that question. Travis, final comments. Well, Take Richard, as long as you want. Uh, Richard, thank you uh, for this opportunity, this blessing. Um, you know, my career has been in at the Missionary Training Center, Missionary Department, Missionary Work. And I always thought that, that standing as a witness of God in all things, all in all ways, all, all times, all things, and uh, in all places, thank you, um, was about proclaiming the gospel. Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, you know. Uh, the world needs the gospel, and wherever you are, preach the gospel, teach the gospel. You know, that that's always what that's meant, be an example of, of the church and missionary work. Um. I've come to realize and, and believe personally that sometimes he asks us to stand as witnesses of things that we never imagined that we would have to witness. Uh, Margaret just now witnessing um, of, of God's love for his children, you know, a parent who's struggling, witnessing that, you know, they're God's and, and God's got them and we need to let go of them. Uh, that's a witness that's come from really hard things. I could have never imagined in my life that God would require of me, um, invite me, take me to a place um, that we're here I am tonight with you and your guests in this podcast and talk about... Um, Christ taking me on a journey. Uh, this is one of those things you just don't talk about. Um, from the from the onset of this difficult journey of, that started a few years ago, um, the one little dangling piece, and I would talk about this often, that in all of this pain, in all of this difficulty processing and trying to work through what this all meant, um, I could feel a tiny sliver of the divine in it. There's just this, this tiny little piece that just said, and it wasn't a voice, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, some big thing necessarily, but I just held on to this feeling, very small, that there is purpose in this. There's God's, something's going on here. And uh, sometimes I would lose sight of that, and uh, other times I would feel a little more. Um, mostly I didn't, but um, getting through this time and being on this other side, and again, not saying that it's all over, or it's all great, or it's all, you know, Yahoo, and, you know, who knows? <laughs> I'm the last one to say, hey, you know, I, I don't know anything. I'm just grateful that I'm here and I can... I can talk about this, and uh, and I can testify of of Christ um, 
and his awareness of me and my gayness and my shame and my pain and my suffering and all the different ways that's played out as uh, as a son of God, uh, as a husband, as a father, as a member of the church, as a leader in the church, uh, that he has... Um, he has been at every part of this, and it's been of his doing mercifully. Again, I just reflect back on what if I had, you know, what if I had made it? What if I had hunkered down and I'd, I made it? The, the tremendous tragedy that that would have been. And in his goodness, in his mercy, in his kindness, that he would cut me down and... Uh, take me to a new place that is uh, really beautiful. And uh, and not that I've had some privilege or that I'm at some privileged space. I just think, man, for whatever I thought I knew, I don't know anything. I'm just grateful. I'm just, I'm just grateful for what he gives me and, uh, and all of it's meaningful and all of it's purpose purposeful. He, lo- he loves us, knows us uh, individually. And I believe that now, uh, that he knows me and he's with me and, uh, and that I have something to bear witness of. And I bear witness of this journey, um, that this experience uh, doesn't matter how it started, but, but God's got it. And I'm I'm not uh, I'm not broken and bad and evil, and uh, it's known to him and it's a part of his plan. I don't know how and I don't know in what ways and I don't want to project my personal thoughts and feelings about what that might look like on anyone, but I can bear witness that he has been with me, and that this has been meaningful and purposeful. There is a reason and a purpose behind what I'm experiencing. And I just add my witness to the many that are out there. And again, it's a witness of Christ and Heavenly Father and their love for me and their carrying me through and taking me on a journey that's been for my benefit. And uh, and I'm not saying there's any part of the answer in that. It's they have been with me in my journey. And I believe they will continue with all of us in our journeys and they never stop being with us and they will never stop being with me. Um, You are not alone. No one is alone out there. They're in that detail. I I can bear witness of that. Thank you, Margaret. Travis, as you're holding hands for being on the podcast on behalf of all of our listeners, I have been so personally edified and, there will be thousands that will listen to this podcast. Um, I hope the whole church could listen to it. You have a very unique and beautiful life mission and a great understanding of the doctrine of Christ to bring hope and heal. And thank all our listeners. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.